Welcome to Rocking Your Prayers. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. And now begins the third finale of a scintillating trilogy on East Asian culture. Okay. In some societies, collective harmony is more highly valued than self-expression. If people are reluctant to speak out, prior culture is more likely to persist, unchallenged. Caring deeply about social approval amplifies fears of ostracism and motivates quiet conformity. Moreover, where self-assertion is strongly disliked, feminist activism is more likely to trigger patriarchal backlash. Through recent fieldwork in Mexico, Spain, Hong Kong and South Korea, I realise that this is a hugely important but widely overlooked driver of the great gender divergence. To highlight the importance of collective harmony, let me share some insights from my interviews with men and women in China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan and South Korea. So this podcast is going to be divided into several sections. First, we'll talk about what are these ideals of collective harmony? Why do these ideals persist? I'll talk about low immigration, cultural homogeneity, teacher-centric schooling. And then we'll think about the consequences in terms of dislike of dissent, ostracism of rebels, sexism going unchallenged, and victims of sexual abuse being silent until confident of wider solidarity. And then we'll talk about patriarchal backlash after Me Too. Okay, so let's kick off. East Asians tend to value collective harmony. People are more inclined to see themselves as part of a wider group and show self-restraint. Asserting one's own wants may provoke unease and anger, especially if it challenges established hierarchies. Globally, neuroscientists find variation in the psychological anguish experienced upon social disapproval. Koreans traditionally revered nunchi. It means one should be socially sensitive, anticipate others' concerns, and maintain harmony. When speaking to elders, Koreans usually use more respectful language. Japanese aversion to individualism is encapsulated in the old saying, the nail that pops up is always hammered down. Collectivism is sometimes misunderstood. I must emphasise that ideals of collective harmony are perfectly compatible with economic competition. One may want to keep the peace while simultaneously aspiring for upward social mobility. And let's be clear, this distinction between collectivist and individualist does not imply an east-west binary. There is a spectrum which seems more pronounced among certain peoples. We also see some national heterogeneity and change over time. Culture is never set in stone. Notwithstanding these caveats, a wealth of nationally representative data clearly suggests that East Asians are more inclined to see themselves as part of a larger group and prioritise... Oh, I could cut that out, but maybe it's better for you just to know that I embarrass myself frequently. Okay. Now, why do ideals of collective harmony persist? Well, cultures have evolved over millennia. What we observe and idealise today 
comes after centuries of ancestral farming, kinship organisation, brutal conquest, state development and moral evangelism. In East Asia, rice farming's labour intensity and interdependence may have encouraged greater social awareness and concern for collective harmony. Confucianism also instilled social hierarchies, especially after it was institutionalised by imperial dynasties. Literature lavished praise on those who lived by cardinal virtues. Given strong returns to collectivism, parents socialised their children for conformity. Now, through recent fieldwork, I realised two further factors that perpetuate ideals of collective harmony, low immigration and teacher-centric education. Now, East Asians who had studied in the West or worked in internationally diverse firms always described major cultural differences and their gradual cultural assimilation, as one professional woman from Hong Kong explained. In Hong Kong, I studied at a local school. You don't raise your hand. You don't ask stupid questions because I felt I would get judged. People would judge you if you raised your hand too much. You're trying to show off. In the US, where she went to secondary school, everyone just raises their hand and and speaks what they want to speak. I wasn't as confident as them, but I did have a breakthrough. I felt more confident. I was in a very diverse place. I felt quite accepted. I felt confident to raise my hand because everyone does the same. When I came back to Hong Kong, I was more confident than before, but I was more collective. I felt I just had to blend in. In more diverse environments, with strong norms of self-assertion, East Asian men and women said that they felt more comfortable speaking out. Korean women who worked in foreign firms often told me, it's very international, I don't have to do nunchi. However, Such experiences are relatively uncommon in South Korea, where immigrants only comprise 4% of the population, and they're mostly East Asian. Homogeneity seems to encourage cultural tightness and dislike of difference, as argued by Michelle Gelfand in her wonderful book, Rule Makers and Rule Breakers. Hong Kong illustrates this perfectly. It is much more liberal, and people pride themselves on enjoying the melting pot of East and West. Okay, now let's talk about teacher-centric schooling. East Asian students tend to top internationally comparative tests for reading and writing. Students excel at these exams. Nonetheless, East Asian governments and educational experts have expressed concerns that schools overemphasize rote learning and memorization. This is consistent with my interviews. East Asians overwhelmingly describe their education as listening to the teacher while remaining quiet and taking notes. In Seoul, I met three Japanese women who had recently finished high school. Together, we headed to Cat's Playground Cafe. As the cats purred, we chatted about schooling. They said, and I quote, It's top-down rote learning. You listen and memorise. You don't give your opinion. It's more about being in the middle. You feel self-conscious and embarrassed. One shouldn't be a troublemaker or kick up a fuss. It's better to take the pressure than be a troublemaker. Others will urge you to be quiet, be harmonious. There is no culture of being adversarial. Men are just as introverted as women. Senior school administrators affirm this trend of teacher-centric education, and I quote from a Korean civil servant who manages three high schools. 
One-sided lessons have been going on in Korea for a long time. The culture of discussion is very weak. This is something that needs to be improved a lot. And that's why the school board is making a lot of these policies to create a culture of discussion. But the fact is, it's not actively done. I tend to get a little bit caught up in the entrance exams, called college entrance exams. Students are nervous about each other. Students care a lot about how they're seen by their peers. Nobody wants to be a minority. Some worry about being isolated. I think it's very common in every country, but in Korea, we have it a little stronger. A Korean academic similarly said, there is no culture of speaking out in high school. It doesn't do you any good if you speak out. It doesn't improve your test scores. It doesn't improve your reputation. University students also expressed reluctance to speak out. They gave a range of reasons. Not being accustomed, respect for the teacher, worrying about getting something wrong, not wanting to inconvenience others, and preference for collective harmony. In seminars, Koreans told me that they tend to avoid topics that are divisive or conflictual, like gender or conscription. A male software engineer in uh, Seoul explained, We rarely discuss things. Even in college, we rarely discuss. We usually listen to what the professor teaches us. It's one-sided. Because of the culture of respecting elders, you have to be very cautious when approaching teachers, he said in translation. Now, some people may feel more emotional anguish at the prospect of negative evaluation, whereas others just brush it off. And that can vary worldwide. In Korean language, there are at least nine different terms to describe the psychological distress of social embarrassment. A Korean student who spent a semester abroad in China told me that the Italian sat at the front of her class and asked stupid questions that were on the next page. Quote. They had no shame, she said. In Hong Kong, a European professor expressed the polar opposite frustration. He had repeatedly tried to encourage participation, and yet students remained silent. Evidently, there are cultural differences. Now, here's the big question. How do these ideals of collective harmony affect gender? Well, in schools and workplaces that idealise collective harmony, people may not necessarily develop the habit of speaking out. They may be perfectly comfortable with close friends and family, but otherwise self-censor. Even if one wishes to express dissent, it can be costly. Others who idealise harmony may feel uncomfortable and distance themselves from subversives. Rebels may be ostracised, and that only sows wider despondency. Without a culture of feminist consciousness, sexism goes unchallenged. Victims of sexual abuse remain silent until they are supremely confident in wider solidarity and social support. Even if they do develop the courage to organise collectively, that can generate massive backlash. So let me expand on these points, drawing on my interviews. So first of all, I want to talk about how support for gender equality can persist alongside dislike of dissent. So let's talk about Sankey. She is 30 and employed at a public enterprise in Seoul. And one of the first things she said to me was, I don't like these feminist protesters. It's too adversarial. Why don't they resolve these issues calmly? I nodded, expressing empathy. Chatting over coffee, I realised that Sang-hee supports gender equality but loathes confrontation. A man at her firm was recently promoted over more experienced female colleagues. Now, privately, they all grumbled about sexual sexist discrimination. 
But they stayed silent to management. Complaining was pointless and it risked wider ostracism. Curious to understand her views, I presented a hypothetical scenario where a woman proposes a change to corporate culture. Now, I role-played that a woman politely puts up her hand in a company meeting and I said, and this is a direct reenactment of the role-play, I said, I would like to propose that we end our company drinking culture. When people drink, they make mistakes. They do things inadvertently, which can make others uncomfortable. Now, I spoke just like that, very softly and gently. I really tried to be extremely non-conflictual. But Sanhi's revulsion was evident immediately. She furled her lips, recoiled and looked visibly uncomfortable. She grimaced and told me, it lacks nunchi. Minjun, her male friend, was equally puzzled. And he said in Korean, I would be amazed. I mean this positively, he said. But why is this person imposing their views on others? Why don't they just drop out? He was shocked. And I thought I was being mild and polite. Now, to ease their discomfort, I suggested a more sympathetic backstory. I said, well, let's suppose her boss was drunk and put his hand on her thigh. And she doesn't want to confront her boss, but wants to solve it indirectly. Sang He was still displeased. And she said, we care about the opinion of others. So ideals of collective harmony mean that Sang He dislikes feminist activism. She remains silent amid discrimination and feels uncomfortable about relatively mild attempts to make the workplace more inclusive. And this holds even though she privately supports gender equality. And through more interviews, I realised this is a common trend. So let me tell you about Jin Ai, who is a 45-year-old female professional. Now, the minute we sat down for coffee, she asked me one direct question. Are you a feminist? No, I said. I research gender, but only as a social scientist. I don't have a particular ideology. I'm just looking at data. I don't like feminism, she told me. They're too adversarial, too aggressive. I feel uncomfortable. But gender discrimination is very real. And Jin Ai proceeded to divulge major grievances, which had been very upsetting. Last year, when assessing different job candidates, her boss subtly signalled his preference. Silently, he pointed one finger. Nonetheless, Jin Ai ranked another candidate more highly. When her boss discovered this, he erupted in anger, infuriated by her subversion. Afraid of getting a reputation as a troublemaker, she stayed silent. Another time, male colleagues went to a karaoke bar. Jin Ai arrived later, only to discover that they'd hired a private room and paid for, like, a, a sexy woman to serve them drinks. She was horrified. And her boss basically gaslit her. He said, well... You shouldn't be surprised by this at your age. So he was like chiding her for being repulsed. And Jin Ai was very upset. You know, over several hours in our conversation, she bemoaned this unfairness. And yet, the very first thing she said to me was that feminists are too adversarial. So she appears to have internalised a preference for harmony alongside a commitment to equality. I also learned through interviews with Koreans, Hong Kongers, Chinese and Japanese that they all describe their workplaces, especially if they're large firms, as very hierarchical. 
If superiors are accustomed to deference, they may react aggressively and angrily to insubordination, especially, especially if it comes from juniors or women. Now, backlash does not just come from bosses. Rebels may also discover that they have lost friends and been alienated, and that clearly prevents cultural change. Fear and ostracism, others can form, and that only perpetuates pluralistic ignorance and despondency. Colleagues may interpret silence as implicit support for the status quo. Now, office politics is a dangerous game. No one wants to get on the wrong side of management and lose their job. Economists, with no appetite for cultural explanations, could say that silence in the face of workplace discrimination is entirely due to material self-interest. But in South Korea, I saw many non-economic instances where sexism goes unchallenged. So the National Museum of Korea is vast, expansive and truly excellent. The collection is also extremely patriarchal. There are many paintings, artefacts, genealogies, stories and depictions of men's historical roles, but absolutely no mention of women. It's almost as if, and I'm being perfectly, I'm really being serious here, it's almost as if there were no women in Korean history. Now, in part, this reflects the reality of patriarchy. But in the Silla dynasty, that is um, 1st century BCE uh, to the 9th century CE, there were three queens, and yet they're absent. They're not mentioned in the museum. So afterwards, I chatted to two sales assistants at a jewellery shop. And I described my observations and asked what they thought of it. For them, it wasn't a problem. They knew there was one Silla Queen, but they weren't remotely concerned. Now, that contrasts with what we've seen in the West. You know, from the 1970s, Western feminist anthropologists, archaeologists and historians have lambasted male-centric narratives for ignoring women's agency, power and contributions. And under that sustained feminist pressure, Western museums have become much more woke. They try to show more diversity. So without that same culture of self-assertion, that doesn't seem to have occurred, at least not yet, in South Korea. Now, I want to be very clear. Ideals of collective harmony are clearly no barrier to contentious politics. Taiwan and South Korea are both thriving democracies. Hong Kong was too before 2019. But in cultures where people fear ostracism, they may remain silent on certain issues until they anticipate strong social solidarity and strength in numbers. Japan had no movement for Me Too. It didn't reach the necessary critical mass to overcome individual fears of disapproval. Women remained silent. Taiwan did not see massive mobilisation in 2016. It was only in 2023, after a Netflix show, Wave Makers, depicted sexual harassment by Taiwanese politicians, that a wave of survivors came forward. Sympathetic media and ensuing public conversations may have raised their confidence in public support. Now, many victims still remain silent. In our conversation, some emphasise concerns for the wider group. In Hong Kong, a a female professional told me that she was molested on a bus, but remained quiet. Society wouldn't like her inconvenience them all by screaming and stopping the bus, she explained. That was her explanation. She said society would not like her inconveniencing them all by screaming and stopping the bus. 
she explicitly prioritised the wider collective. Now, let's talk about backlash. Feminist activism and advances can trigger patriarchal backlash. When US states passed equal amendment, uh, equal rights amendments guaranteeing equal rights, men actually became more sexist. That's a new paper by Brian Wheaton. Um, likewise in Spain. Um, Eva and Andoisa and uh, Guillaume Rico show that feminist marches appear to have aggravated sexism and galvanised votes for the far right. So that evidence of patriarchal backlash is very clear. Now, if one group feels entitled to deference and high status, they may feel personally attacked when one low-status group demands greater rights and protections. Cultural entrepreneurs can capitalise on these patriarchal anxieties by mobilising their media networks and highlighting statistically rare occasions of false accusations. Feminist activism is not just a battle over status, it can also be aggressive and divisive. And clearly this clashes with ideals of collective harmony. From 2016 to 2019, South Koreans saw an eruption of feminist activism. Thousands of women marched against spy camps and impunity for sexual abuse. Resolute in solidarity, they shouted back, my life is not your pawn. Now, as with any political movement, there was a wide spectrum of voices. Some were more radical. Medallions, a so-called radical group, mirrored aggressively misogynist language. And they had a sign, mocking men's little penises. Obviously, that didn't go down so well. Feminist activism triggered massive counter-reaction, especially among young men. Political and cultural entrepreneurs mobilised the masses. Now, let me quote uh, Bay in Q, uh, the head of Man on Solidarity, one of the country's most active anti-feminist groups. He said, we don't hate women and we don't oppose elevating their rights, but feminists are a social evil. Yoon Suk-yeol launched a successful campaign for president by politicising mandatory conscription and defining himself as an anti-feminist. If you look at the timings, it is precisely after the 2016 feminist activism when young Korean men lurched to the right. This extreme hostility must be contextualised as coming from a society with strong ideals of both patriarchy and collective harmony. So let me sum up. In brief, I suggest that ideals of collective harmony discourage self-assertion. Concerned to fit in, people may choose monochrome cars, keep quiet in class, refrain from speaking out, and ostracise rebels. Even if people are privately supportive of gender equality, they may still feel serious discomfort when others rock the boat. Threshold effects also come into play. If people are concerned for social approval, they may stay quiet until they are extremely confident of wider support. Feminist activism also seems to provoke psychological discomfort, even among those who support gender equality. The timings provide strong evidence of backlash. It was exactly after the 2016 marches when Korean politicians successfully marshaled anti-feminist resistance. Basically, if you have patriarchy and ideals of collective harmony, then throw in some feminist activism, you get massive backlash. 
As far as I'm aware, this is an original theory of how ideals of collective harmony may shape cultural contestation. I would love to see this tested and explored more widely. Uh, next week, I'm going to New York. Well, in fact, this Sunday. Better get my skates on. Um, and I'll be presenting this theory. Oh, yes, that's another thing. So I'm going to New York for a week and then D.C. and then Richmond and then in two weeks time I'll be in Palo Alto. So if you're in California or New York or D.C. and you'd like to say hello, shoot me a pigeon or an owl. Um, But otherwise, wishing you all the very best. I hope you're happy and well. Take care and be harmonious or as assertive as you like. Thank you.